Halito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here, we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive, while also sharing with you our Native cultures, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode, where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. Today I'm in Wright City, Oklahoma, with my fellow Choctaw and friend, Solomon Tonica, to talk about some stories you absolutely will not find in the history books, y'all. You do not want to miss this conversation, so please stay with us. But first, a word from our sponsor. Potential is everywhere in the Choctaw people. It's in our schools and students. It's in our small businesses and entrepreneurs. Potential is in our lifestyle and health. It's in our culture and heritage. Passion and commitment is in our blood. Ingenuity and economy are a tradition. And the Chutha Foundation was founded for this potential. To cultivate minds and hearts, to stimulate ideas and passions, to extend lives and improve health through education and to preserve and promote the power of our past. The Chata Foundation, meeting the potential of the Choctaw people. Halito Solomon, Chimachukma. Halito, Solomon Tonica, Rock City, Oklahoma, up to I was born in Tallahena, Oklahoma. I live here in Wright City, Oklahoma, and I'm 53 years old. Great. Thank you so much for sharing that with us in your native tongue. So you grew up right here in Wright City. For our listeners, Wright City has under 1,000 inhabitants and is 38% Native American. My favorite story about your town is when a drought came through in 1956, where 700 or so hogs who were starving, so sad, and they were real thin, they were released into the city so that they could graze and fatten up. The piggies barged into the drugstore, they tore up yards eating all the flowers, and they even disturbed a sermon at the Methodist Church when nine pigs were in the basement fighting. I'm assuming the hog problem has been taken care of by now, right, Solomon? I hope so. We still have a lot of wild hogs. Yeah. And they still tear things up, and, and they're smart. They're hard to catch. So something very rare about you, Solomon, is that you're a first language Choctaw speaker. Tell us more about that. I was raised here, and my mom and dad, that's all they spoke, Choctaw. Mm. And so that's what I spoke until I went to school. Before I went to school, I finally learned English before I went. Yeah. And I don't remember kindergarten or anything like that in those days. I just went to first grade. Oh, okay. Yeah. So but that, that's what I, what I, what I, how I learned here. My, my grandmother just lived down the road from us on the same place here and down by the creek. And she was 96 years old when she passed, 1982. Hmm. 
She must have had some stories to tell. Oh, yeah. That's why I learned a lot of things. Yeah. Listen. If you think about it, how many generations back would it have been that your family came over from Mississippi? I really don't know. As far as uh, grandparents talking about an aunt. Now, I don't know if it was a great aunt or an aunt, but they talked about one aunt who, uh, she said, they might make me move from Alabama to here, but they can't make me eat their flour. And she beat the corn. So what do you think she meant by that? I think it was just out of, uh, <laughs> I think it was just out of, uh, I can't say meanness. It just, she was just blunt. You're not going to make me do something I don't want to do. Yeah. More or less. Mm-hmm. The corn and the meal. Yeah. And and I don't know uh, how many people has talked about it, but they used to make it out of kitty. Mm. We used to have one. My granny had one, and it was about this big around. How they made it was cut. It was so high about like this. They put the charcoal. I'm not the charcoal, but the coals, the hot coals in, there, in the center of it. And mm. then that's how you cut it out. And it burned down in there deep enough. You had to burn it, keep putting coals in there. And then you clean it all out, scrape it and stuff where it's clean. Yeah. And then you put the corn in there and use the, the stick. Yeah. The, the big heavy stick that's bigger on the end up here, so heavy, and you beat the meal. Mm-hmm. The corn, once you beat the hulls and stuff off, there was three separate baskets she had. Mm-hmm. And they were about this about this long. This end was kind of flat down on this one. It was like a, if you could steal it up, it was like a cup. Yeah. But you scrape all that out of there and you shake it. The final one goes into another basket. And then the same way with that basket, you shake that basket and the meal is in the last basket and it catches it. So you want the smaller pieces. You want all the smaller pieces. Yeah. And then whatever was left, you put it back and then beat it. You know, that's it's a lot of work. Yeah. But still, that's how they made it, you know. And it probably tasted so good. Yes. I would imagine. Yes. yes. So did you remember them making it like that? Uh, no. I seen her do it one time because she was already old whenever yeah. I was a kid. Yeah. So, but she said, this is how you do it. And I, I think one time is the only time I ever seen it done like that. Yeah. And never I've seen it anybody else do it. But it's a lot of work, you know, because <laughs> you got to beat that to a meal and then you got to do all to make the banana. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's a lot of work in it. Yeah, I can imagine, you know, the things that taste so good are usually the things that are truly made from scratch. And I definitely don't have the patience for that, but I love it when other people do. (laughs) So most Choctaws, their language died out two or three generations ago. So Choctaw being your first language is not common, that's for sure. But that's what I think people don't know about Oklahoma. There are some areas in Indian country where it's primarily native. Some speak a mix of the native language and English, but there are also some grandparents out there that barely speak any English. And that's rare, but still a thing. And this land you're on, this land means something to you, right? Yes. This land was uh, allotted to my grandpa Mm -hmm. in 1907. And we still live here. My dad was was the one that lived here before me, and that's when I come along. He used to tell me, "You're going to have to do it like this. This has to be taken care of." Mm-hmm. And he, he always told me, "And I don't have a son. Mm-hmm. I've got two daughters, and you know I used to treat them kind of like they were boys and put them to work." Yeah. <laughs> but my grandson, I have a grandson, and I tell him he's eight years old, and I said, "You." This has got to be done like this because I'm not going to always be here. Mm-hmm. I'm just your grandpa. I discipline him. I teach him. 
Because when I'm gone, I said, you have to carry on here, and you're the one that's got to take care of this place. Absolutely. He knows a lot for eight years old. He's even cooked hog meat. Me and him cooked, you know. Awesome. And uh, he steered the hog meat, and this is how you do it. Mm-hmm. And teaching. But this land here has been in our family since 1907. As far as being here before then, I don't know exactly. They never did say, but my, my grandpa bathed in the creek because the creek, Cypress Creek runs across our property and cuts mm. it off up here on the north end over here. And my grandpa bathed every day, whether it was snowing or whether really? it was in the summertime. He dove off in the water and bathed and wow. come My dad said that uh, that was every day ritual for him mm. to bathe. It's the start of his day. Yeah. Bathing in a creek, nice and fresh water there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's some homes around here that I think have some historical significance, correct? Yes. The steel place has 40 acres over there. He was a sooner. He came in before all this land rush and before the allotments of land. And all around here, the land around us, a lot of it's warehousing now, but like the town, Wright City, was all talked our names. I seen it when I went to Durant on the paperwork. Mm-hmm. But his says steel place. Wow. Yes. Interesting. And this this land on the north side over here, if you, we was to go on it, trees everywhere. It's beautiful but when out here. My dad was a kid. They call that salpasa, you know, or it was to, to make big gardens, mm-hmm. the, the field down there in the below, because we're on a hill here, and down below, down there was was where they grew all the crops. Okay. And that's where they worked the land. What kind of crops did they have? Well, mostly a lot of corn. Mm-hmm. But you got to have corn. Yeah, to make all that banana. Yeah, for all that banana. you got to have corn to feed your horses. My grandpa, his name was Millwood Watkins. Okay. But they called him Washashi. And I don't know what Washashi means, but that was his nickname. Huh. And he, he used to shoe horses. And even some, they bring him wild stallion, they want to shoe. And he could take a rope and go out there and talk to him, almost like a horse whisperer, what they call wow. it. Wow! Yeah. He go out there and talk to him, and the horse was, you know, just wild-eyed. And he'd take that rope and talk to that horse, and he'd walk around that horse, slowly bringing that rope closer and closer around that horse. Pretty soon, all the rope was around this horse's feet, and he he knew a certain way to tie it. And then when the horse went crazy, he just the rope just get tighter and tighter and tighter. Ah. Pretty soon the horse fall. Mm-hmm. And then he just tighten up the rope and all of and then shoot the horse with. And he was a good... Uh, he was the first horse yes. whisperer. More or less. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you know if they but, were Choctaw ponies? I imagine so. Horse? Yeah. Because uh, my dad used to talk about an uncle that was... You know, we had a lot of outlaws on the Watkins side. And that, that's the stories I know. Yeah. And one of them, he liked to... Raised cane, uh-huh. and he was, uh, you know, back then you couldn't, and he peddled whiskey, and then, but he liked to drink, and he always wanted to get down here to the saloons at Valley and stuff and raise cane, and he always, you know, carried his pistol, and whenever he got into somewhere, he'd get in fight, <laughs> and then when he leave, he's going to shoot everything up. he shoot lights, windows, <laughs> and they hated awesome. his guts. So they got the uh, light horseman, mm-hmm. and then whatever law they had, they said, we need to do something about him. So they lay in wait for him one night, and sure enough, he showed up over there. 
and he started raising cane. He got liquored up. There were 15 light horsemen, or the 15 law. I don't know what they was called back in them days, but with the 30-30 carbines, the rifles, five laid on one side of the road. They laid in the dark. Mm-hmm. And a little further up, five more laid on this side to shoot this way. And then five more laid on the other side to shoot. So when he comes running through there, they was going to get him. And sure enough, he shoots up the town, he leaves, and come up through them 15 lawmen laying there. And they shot. And by the time he went through the second batch, his horse was already flipping. Mm-hmm. And they shot his horse, and his, he had a brand new saddle. They shot it all up, and when they reached the last five, took a match and lit a, a light, and uh, he was laying on the ground. He was riddled with bullet holes and blood coming out everywhere, and he said, Hey, my master, home son now, it's a lot meaning don't shoot me no more, I'm dying. And one of them lawmen walked up to him in his chest and just emptied his gun on him and killed him. Wow. You know, so... We had to just come come out of, you know, on that side, there was a lot of... What was his name? I, I don't know. See, the, oh, the names, okay. I don't know. Okay. Because they used to say, Amoshi, that was my uncle. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't say people's names in those days. Mm-hmm. It's Mamoshi, my my uh, Sapogne, and I'll tell you this story. My dad was six foot tall. Right. When he was born, he was next to the youngest, and... My granny thought he was going to die because he was born too early. And so she laid him in a shoebox because he was too little. And he just laid there and cried. Well, he said his Pukunishila came over. Pukunishila is dried up grandma. She's, you know, I guess she was skinny, short, you know. Pukunishila came over and said, you know, I heard you had a baby. Where's he at? And he was laying in the corner crying. She said, he's laying over there in the shoebox because... He, he couldn't suck. Oh. He's too little. His mouth was too oh, little. Oh, no. And she said, you got to feed that baby or he'll die. She said, well, he can't. He's too little. Mm-hmm. She said, well, you got to feed him. She said, she said, give me some milk. She got some milk and put it on a cloth, a little handkerchief cloth or something, mm-hmm. and stuck it in his mouth, and my, my dad drank it. Wow. And, that's how, and she stayed a whole week feeding him, and after a week, he, his mouth started opening up big enough that he could suck. And that's how my dad survived and lived. If it weren't for your but he was grandma. Six, yeah, if it wasn't for Pukunishila, he wouldn't have made it. Wow. You know? What a story. But he said, Pukunishila, he said, he had little hands, little skinny hands, and the tip of his head and the tip of his feet was oh, as long so as her hand. Oh, so tiny. He, and, and, and yet he yeah. grew to, to be six yeah, foot six tall. Yeah, six foot tall. And that's tall for a Choctaw, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But my bunch was always pretty, pretty yeah. tall. It was all tall, you know, even the women tall. Really? Uh, yeah. And then yeah. some of your ancestors are buried near your house, correct? Yeah, I've got a family cemetery here. Yeah. Just down the road there. i got another story I'll tell you yeah. about one of the outlaws. Yeah. He uh, peddled whiskey, another one, and he meets this woman. He, he likes this woman. Mm-hmm. So they hit it off, and uh, so they, they get married that that settle down he's still doing his whiskey mm-hmm. that's his livelihood that's where he gets his money he'd run down there in texas but you couldn't buy whiskey here and he'd buy it and he'd come through here and selling it yeah and that's how he made money and the law knew 
or hurt her when anytime they catch somebody, anytime they had trouble, he's the one that's selling it to them. <laughs> but they couldn't prove it because he wasn't making it. Yeah. And they've been watching him and such. And he told his wife, now he's got two, three little ones. And he told his wife, he said, I'm going to go get it one more time. And I'm going to quit because he's got kids now. He said, I don't want them to send me to prison. Mm. I'm going to take y'all with me. And she said, okay, you know, because he's the man. And so they load up the wagon, they go. And I don't know where he dropped them off, but he goes down in Texas and gets a load of whiskey. Yeah. And you've probably seen the barrels. They're just about this tall, the small barrels, the wooden barrels. Yeah. Fills that, almost that, almost fills the wagon up with them barrels, but leaves room for the wife and the food. Mm-hmm. And full of whiskey. He buys one barrel of sorghum molasses. And so he takes a spoon and opens that, and all the whiskey barrels, he takes his syrup and pour it around all them barrels. So all the barrels look like they're sorghum molasses. Hmm. He comes across the river, <laughs> picks his family up. He comes a little ways and it's evening time, so they camp at a creek somewhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, the lawmen show up, and he just, he said, I think they're going to be, you know, looking for me. So he has her cook more biscuits, you know, <laughs> buy the slab bacon. They cut a lot of bacon up. She's cooking up storm. Sure enough, they, she had a pile of biscuits up, and they show up. And they all come riding in, just, you know, I mean, just in a hurry, and dust, everything, just rolled up right fast, looking around. And they see this wagon over there with all them little barrels. He said, He said, get down, come eat. And so the lawmen, they all get down, and they, you know, looking around, what you doing, this, and you know, full of questions, but they can't resist the smell of this breakfast cooking. <laughs> and she has a pile of meat, this you know, slab of bacon that, that she's cooking. And he said, Biscuits, uh, he said, grab me a biscuit and eat. So they looked around and he went over there and got one of them, the, the one that had molasses in it. He opens it. Each one walked by getting molasses on their biscuit, putting a piece of meat in it, eating. When they, they all got full, got through, they ride off. And when they ride off, they hurry up, load up, but take that load of whiskey back to one more time. Yeah. He quit because he wanted to raise a family. Wow. So he had to take up to farming or whatever it was then mm-hmm. to make money. But, you know, stories like that I have on my dad's side. Yeah. I love that uh, story. Yeah. One, one that, uh, on my dad's side, they caught him. You know, he was, he was a thief. Mm-hmm. My dad said anytime he come visit, when he leaves, something was gone. <laughs> it might have been a pair of britches on the on the clothesline, but he's gonna steal something. But right. he'll come. He will work. If you're working in the garden, you know, in, in the field, if you're cutting wood, split, you know, chopping, he will work his tail off. But when he spend the night and when he leaves, something's gone. <laughs> he might take a whole row of cabbage or something out your garden, but he's going to take something. Hide your stuff. Yeah, and he was still, and not just the kinfolk, but he steal horses. Mm. He'd go up north, steal horses, and he'd come down to Texas and sell it. He'd grab a couple while he's down there and come back through and sell them. You know, so he was an outlaw. Yeah. And they got tired of him. So, but they couldn't catch him. And then he had a wife and family, and he, he had them in the mountains. Mm. And and they go to Chattalikji. 
in, in the Choctaw doctor. And he said, yeah, y'all can catch him. He's going to be on a certain, certain mountain on a certain, certain day. His family's there. He said, but they're like deer. You can't catch them. They're so scared. They're, they're, they're like a wild animal. They're listening. They're smelling. And you can't get close. The only way you can get close to him is you ride your horses up to this mountain and you got to crawl up the side of the mountain. He won't be expecting you to come from that way. Whoa. So that's what they did. And when they got up there, he said, the Indian doctor told him, Shulos, Atonis, Benilachin. He's going to be sitting there sewing his boot, his shoes. Mm-hmm. And he said, one of y'all going to have to be ready and shoot him. And he said, the kids and the wife will run like a deer. You can't catch them. And he said, but that's the only way you can shoot him. So that's what they did. Mm-hmm. And they shot him and cut his head off and took a couple of wire, put a hole in both sides of his ear and tied it between two trees. Oh, my god. That's gosh. just how much he was hated. And... The wind blow, and his eyes was open, and they left his head like that. Whoa. And, it was, and they come back down out of the mountain and told the family. There was some distant kin to not close to us, but, you know, it was mm-hmm. some kin to us. And we told the family that we got him. He's up there. So then the family went and got him, cut the head down, and gave it a proper, proper burial. So that's the kind of stories I know on my daddy's side. Uh-huh. You know, they were just bunch of outlaws and whatever. You know, Sounds like my family members. <laughs> yeah. But on my mama's side, I didn't know too much. They uh, took up Christianity. My grandpa, great-grandpa was, you know, minister and Yeah. So, yeah, but that's the kind of line family would come from. Interesting know. family. Now for our listeners, something significant about Solomon saying he still has the, he and his family still have the 160 acres is that many natives no longer have their land from the allotments that were a result of the Dawes Act in which natives received their 160 acres. Most families have sold off portions of or all of that land over time. And for some, their land was swindled by white land seekers as well. I'm also pleased that our family still has the land allotments in our possession, but even then some pieces have been sold, such as in the Arbuckle Mountains, and actually Arbuckle Wilderness is um, now on the land that we used to own. So not only are you a first language speaker, but you and your family still hold, you know, all 160 acres of rarity on, on two counts. And this land that's precious to us especially means something because our ancestors truly were survivors. Most people think of the Trail of Tears when they think of the removal. And those who survived that deadly journey or the Trail of Tears went through so much. So we do cherish these lands considering the hell that they basically went through to get here. So Solomon, you have some fascinating stories of when our ancestors traveled here that you won't find in the history books. So I'll quickly paint the picture and then I'll let you run with it. It's May 28, 1830. President Andrew Jackson has just signed the Indian Removal Act in which lands west of the Mississippi and Indian Territory were granted to Native Americans in exchange for the lands they and their ancestors had occupied for centuries. And so in Mississippi in 1832, the Choctaw prepared for their journey to these unknown lands. So tell us more, Solomon. After they moved here, there was no homes. Not what we see now. There was no houses. There were no towns. It was just wilderness. But when they was told they was going to leave, it's just like today, if they told us, you know, you're going to leave, we're, we're moving you. And we'll yeah. say, no, you ain't living, you ain't making me move, this is my home. But when the soldiers came, they wasn't prepared. Most wasn't. Mm-hmm. 
and so they didn't bring no tools or anything to cut trees or whatever. So they had to make do once they got here. On the journey, a lot of them died. That's where a lot of our, our Choctaw hymns came from. It's from on the trail, and they put it to words in a lot of the music we sang. And when the white man first came, and a lot of them there were converted to Christianity, and the missionaries was trying to reach them. And so when they came, they sang a lot of the songs. So a lot of our songs come from, you know, I was told from the journey. Yeah. But once they got here, some started building, cutting trees and whatever. And that's where my elders said that a lot of them killed one another off mm. through Ishtahogo, witchcraft. They would cast spells or, you know, they had their own witch doctors and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so they would go to them and they would cast spells on each other. And when one would find out, another one had done it said, they would say things like, all right, yours is coming, I'm, or I'm going to pay you back. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them, that death afterwards for, was through sickness or being, you know, sick on the way back or the moving here. Mm -hmm. And then the sickness and then couldn't survive because, you know, up here was a new land. But a lot of it came from witchcraft. Mm hmm as, as one would excel in trying to build them a house and whatever they was to survive, some of them were, they didn't have anything. Yeah. And so out of jealousy, I guess you could say, uh, they turned to witchcraft. And a lot of it, they practiced a lot of that way up into, well, around the early 70s, a lot of it was still practicing. We still had just lectures there for a little while. Mm-hmm. And we we made our trips as a kid to one in in Smithfield. We went to uh, one up our coast of Tallahanna. We went to Carnival. We went to Unger. They were the best. These four. Okay. Now you have self-proclaimed that try to learn, and they hurt you more than they would hit you. For some reason, they went against the Chickasaw, mm. and it was almost like a battle in the Chickasaw. Anyway, uh. Whenever they went head to head with the Chickasaw, the Chickasaw beat them more or less. They wasn't powerful enough to fight them, mm -hmm. and so that for them to beat them more or less got their power. And within just a few years, Lano in the doctors. So that fight between the two tribes resulted in no more medicine men. Yes, in that's what I was told. Choctaw. And I was as a kid, that's what I hear them talking. Wow. And today, if you say, mm. and we're more so into the white man ways and mm -hmm. doctors now that there's no wow. but of course they were elders that, that were these doctors and, and they were gone. Just like that. Just like that. And mm. witchcraft was around up in the early 70s, pretty strong mm -hmm. around here. And I know in the Indian country, they still, you know, mess with it. But the Choctaws here more or less had to learn to survive and almost like live like a white man. And then we lose our ways. I seen my uncle, my great uncle, We, you know, he was one of the Indian doctors. And my great uncle, we were him a few times and he'd go out in the woods and gather roots, herbs, leaves, and make medicine. Mm -hmm. But we don't have none of them no more. And the way he was taught, his name was Taft Peters. He was taught, his, his dad was doctor. Mm -hmm. And 
he wanted to teach one of his sons. And so he told the oldest son, I forget what his name was, he told him, said, uh, that means a little whiskey ball laying out there by the gate. Go get it. So he runs over there and he sees this snake laying there. Mm-hmm. So he runs back in and he tells his dad, Dad, ain't no whiskey bottle laying out there. It's a snake. And he knows, you know, he said, well, I'm going to try the other one. So he tells Tad, go get that whiskey bottle. Dad ran over there. He told me whiskey bottle. It's a snake laying here. <laughs> and he said, oh, it's not no snake. So he got real close to him and grabs it. It's a whiskey bottle. And that's how he knew to teach him. And wow. So he taught him how to be a doctor wow. uh, when he was a kid. Mm-hmm. So Taff was taught by his dad. Anyway, he was one of them that was one of the last living Zakhtalichi wow. in Indianville. You know, and it was in your family, which is interesting. Yeah. yeah, he was married to this one here, my mom, the one that raised me. He was married to her sister. There was a lot of stories that he would talk about, you know, we would go mm-hmm. visit and yeah, there's no more of them. It's not, that's, that's the thing of the past. Occasionally you'll see someone claiming to be a you know, Choctaw yeah. medicine doctor, but it sounds like, no, not really, all the, no all more. The, all the you know, original ones are gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them try it. They're self-taught, self-practiced, and some of them, they'll hurt you more than they can hit you. Mm-hmm. Now, Taft, I seen him, I seen him uh, one time. I took an old elderly lady. I drove for her because, you know, it was all the way over at Smithfield. And she wanted me to drive. I just, you know, got my driver license. And uh, she, when do I take that back? I hadn't even got my driver license yet. Because, see, I started driving when I was eight years old here on the place. Yeah. First time I got a ticket, <laughs> I was 12 years old. So I don't really know how old I was when I took her. Yeah. But I took her. She Her arm hurt her so bad. She couldn't raise it up. And so we went to his house, mm. and a house like this, I was sitting on the porch, and you know, no air conditioning, none of this hot, so I'm sitting yeah. in the shade on the porch, and she's in the house, he opened the screen door, you know what I mean, just, you know how the screen door is going, he stick his head out like that, Mete, he said, come here, so I said, yeah, he said, uh, you don't believe in the things I do, I want you to watch, that's what he told me, I ain't said a word to the man, huh? But How did he me know? being young, I'm thinking, you know, it just, you know, just just doctor, okay, you know. Yeah. I don't believe that. that of course, I've heard a lot of stories <laughs> and how Indian doctors had Kanokasha, the little people. You know, I've heard these stories all my life, you know, ever, ever yeah. since I was a kid. So I'm, I'm just looking around, you know, and that's when he calls me inside. So I go in and he gets a, you know, a, the snuff jars. Sweet Garrett jar. Mm-hmm. He takes one of them, he goes over and pulls water in it, dumps it out. And he comes over there and he brought his little old wooden table. And he brings a little old triangle shaped piece of glass about like that long. Mm-hmm. And he brings just like a paper towel. He cuts it all up, just rips it up all piled up. And he lays his glass here. And he brings a box of matches. He puts the matches, that matchbox down. Picks the paper up. Remember, he just poured the water out of this yeah. jar, and he lights this paper, little piece of paper, and drops it in there. You know, it's got water in it, so boom, the fire goes out. He keeps doing that. Well, eventually, the paper starts to burn, and when it's, the paper's in there, that you know, some of them are wet, but some of them starting mm-hmm. to dry, and start burning. 
takes that piece of glass, she pulled her dress down like this, and right here on the back side, he took that sharp glass and held it up there like this with his finger, and he thumped it with the, the sharp end, the pointed end, and he just cut her, cut her a slit by like this. When he did, the blood squirts out, and he grabs his jar and slams it on there like this. Yeah. And she sits there, and this jar starts filling up with blood. Whoa. And he held it, and she goes, oh, oh, she's in a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. And when she goes, oh, oh, and he said, oh, put you He just came out. I'm like, what came out? You know, I'm just <laughs> sitting pain. there. You know, and he's looking at me, you know, and he said, it came out. And he told her, he said, you're going to be just fine. Pops that off. He had a rag, daubs that blood that came out. It quit bleeding. He takes a piece of stick, picks up, and it looks like a piece of meat about that long, that big. A meat. Whoa. And he said, this is what Staholo, somebody that's Staholo you. <gasps> and he shows me, and he said, that's how we take it out. Dang. It down on piece, and it's just a little piece of meat. And he said, she's talking about he said, you got to eat right for three days. And whenever the doctor, they doctor you like that, you was only allowed to eat rice, bread, or what you call skillet bread or whatever. Mm -hmm. That has no baking powder. It had to be flat. It's, so it didn't rise. That's the only bread you could eat. Mm -hmm. And you could eat salt pork. But you had to boil it. You couldn't fry. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing you could eat for three days. And that he said that would that cleanse your body and give it time to heal. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that many times with you know when we went, it took my granny or my mom and dad went to the Linden doctors. Wow. But that that's all you could eat. Yeah. So I don't know some kind of purification or whatever. But makes me want to go get through. some just in case I get sick. <laughs> you know, but you had to follow through. Right. But only rice and that bread with all-purpose flour. You know, you cook in a skillet. Mm -hmm. And you had to boil, cut your jar salt out, and you boil it. And you couldn't put nothing on it. You couldn't eat nothing else. And you only drink water for three days. Did it anyway. help? Yeah, anyway, she was all right after that. She never had no problem. Amazing. You know, but I got to watch one time, most time, if you're the extra when you go to see the doctor, you weren't allowed in there. It's almost wow. like a doctor office. When you go, you're treating a patient as you and the doctor. Right. You know, but, you know, that's what it used to be. But we don't have no more like that, no more. Yeah. No? Yeah. Wow. And you even mentioned that the stickball games were warlike. I mean, as yes. they tend to be anyway, but sounds like there was even death yes, during this time. Was, you don't hear about it nowadays. They talk about stickball. And I heard one guy, I won't mention names, but I heard one guy tell him, it was a bunch of white people down here telling them about a stickball game. It's a friendly game. Well, the way I was taught, it was, uh, that's what settled disputes. Right. And when they come together, they didn't come together and to have a good time. The families came. They cooked. The ones that were going to doctor them up, they came. And whenever they get out there, it was a battle to win. A lot of times, Mishkabamasakahokamamitafa. When they hit him with that stick, which cut somebody open, and just blood would squirt out. And sometimes they'd knock them out. They'd have to, the women would run out there. Because the game's still going, they ain't going to stop for you because you, you got hurt. The women would drag the man off, doctor him up, whatever, and, and then here they go again, you know. And sometimes death. Wow. 
They don't tell stories like that. You don't read that in the book, but that's what the old ones talked about. Mm-hmm. And right down here, a lot of them, well, I guess I might be the only one that knows, but right just down here where the cemetery is, and my daughter lives at the end where my granny's old place, just south of there, about a little over a quarter of a mile, is a kind of it's clear. And it looked like where they logged, that's where they sent it. They always parked there, and, mm-hmm. and you know, they bring the logs and the trucks come with. That's what it looks like. Yeah. But when the trees are planted and they grow, nothing grows there. Hmm. And my dad said, that's where they used to play stickball. Too much hated blood was spilled on that place, sometimes even death. And when they come to settle their disputes, too much bloodshed. And so he said, that's why the trees won't grow there. Now, warehouse, I know, know, in my time, have planted three times. I used to hunt over there before it leased, become leased land. And that open spot, my dad said, there ain't nothing going to grow there because that's where the stickball games used to be played. That place, and then there's another between here and Baptiste, they got that as an airstrip. Now, that's only kind of on a hill, on mm-hmm. a ridge, kind of flat. But used to be a road through there. But now they gated off. You can't even go through there. And that's where the little airplanes land when they fight forest fires, they pick up the flame retardant or yeah, whatever and fight the fires. the fires. So they made it into a little airstrip. But that hill over there, he said, you had to be knocking him mm-hmm. to play there because it had a lot of rock. And, you know, running barefoot and stuff was not good, but you had to be a knocking man. You got to be a man to play there. Wow. And they were, there was a central meeting place there where they played a stickball. So can I see that area over there? Oh, you, yeah, you can see the cemetery, but the stickball place is on uh, the lease land on warehousing. Oh, okay. You have to have a key to gate gotcha. to come in from another road, and then you have to ride a four-wheeler or something all the oh. way to get in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no worries. That's yeah. so fascinating. Yeah, but that's that was old stickball. And so I'll tell you this, uh, my, uh, my cousin, she was a 14... 14, 15, 16, something years younger than my dad. But my granny raised her when her mom died. And uh, my dad said whenever she was little, her mama had died. So granny was raising her. And they was all sitting outside, you know, where my, my, my daughter lives now. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was sitting there. And it's just south of there where that stickball field is. Anyway, she was out there in the yard. In, in those days, kids didn't play in the dark. Mm-hmm. They say, Kanonkosha get you, you know, the little people. You just didn't do certain things. Yeah. You know what? She was sitting there and she cupped her hands like this. And you know how people, they can do that. <sighs> I can't do it right now, but you know how they make it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> used to when we was kids. Yeah, you could we do used that. to do that all the she time. She did that and she blow. And when she did, just south of there towards that old stickball field, it sounded like a man. He went, oh. It was almost like a growl, but and my granny said, "Mom, can I see Paya?" She said, "Watch out! You you call somebody." <laughs> Stop calling and, them. You know, yeah. But I never went over there. And, you know, I've hunted through there many times as a kid. You know, and, and even when I was growing up, I'd go through there, but I never did go there. Not no. You know, yeah. I wouldn't either. Yeah. You mentioned one time that the witch doctors would even get to the field early. Right, before the football game? What was their role there? My dad and my granny used to talk about, in those days, a lot of the coaches were Indian doctors. Mm. So when they come to battle, 
not only was it a rigorous game on the field and very physical, even the powers that be, the doctors came and they run, jump on the field, fall, do flips, run, slide, and trying to work their magic. And so whoever had the best magic, the best war-like players, Mm -hmm. they're the ones that win. They even want the spirits to help them out. That's why the doctors came. I remember a story of my granny. When I was little, we were sitting on a porch, and she said when she was little, she would, she went to one of them games. You know, after a while, they couldn't even play the stickball game because it was too fierce. Mm. But she said she was at a stickball game, and one of them, Chuck the Lickchief, had his team all lined up on one side, and he'd done something. And, you know, it was daytime. The sun was shining, and it was just like a big mirror. It covered the whole team, and it blinded everybody on the other side. The players and, you know, and the coach, he said, oh, corner, and he reached in his bag like this, and whatever he had, he threw it like this, and this mirror, whatever, supposedly was, you know, blinding, it just shattered. Oh, my gosh. But there wasn't nothing on the ground because it's all spiritual. But she used to tell that story. She's seen that. Wow. So, you know, it was to settle disputes. It wasn't always, you know, I don't know if they had friendly games. Mm -hmm. But what I was taught, it was to settle disputes. And it was a a very physical game. And even sometimes death. But nowadays it's a little bit different. They compete. They try to be civil, you know. I guess we're... although sometimes you do see like the teeth knocked out or oh, the t-shirts yeah, yeah. ripped, and <laughs> yeah. but yeah, at least there's no death plays. now. Yeah, he's he got to have some stitches, you know, because he got <laughs> cocked upside the head. Did you, you know? play no, when you were younger? No, I'm just around here, you know, with the kids and yeah, cousins and what, but no, not on no team or nothing. Yeah. And it's so true. Those are the stories that are sometimes passed down orally, but aren't necessarily preserved otherwise. So I appreciate your sharing this with us in a way that we can preserve these for your grandkids and so on. You talked about the story of some Mexican bandits that, again, you won't find in the history books. Tell us well, more about that. Uh, the elders used to talk about Mexican coming in here and raiding, you know, a few times and, and they'd had to... I don't know what all they'd done to them, but they would come riding through and, and they had to defend themselves. They was going to be prepared. And they said, They was prepared. This time when they come, we're going to kill them. And so the bandits came again across the river and come through. And they this time they were ready. Mm-hmm. And they chased them back. I don't know if it's this river or the Red River. But they talk about they killed about 20, 25 of them, shot them while they were trying to cross the river, and they just floated on. And that was one of the stories I was told. So I was at Wheelock. They had a history meeting, and one of the historians and elders, you know, a white guy was there. And I said something about that, and I said, uh, I never, you know, read it in books or anything. I never. And he looked at me, and he said, no, no thing like that has ever happened. Wow, you he know, just shut it down? He shut shut me off, so I won't ever say it again. It's okay, so the man you who's know. lived here for, you know, your ancestors have been here for yeah. decades and all that, yeah. yet he shut you down. Yeah, he, he, he said it wasn't <laughs> true, so I'm wow. just like, 
Well, I won't tell that story again. Well, and I'm glad you're telling it right now because I wanted to tell you something that a few months ago I was laying in bed at night thinking about my great-grandmother, Ella, who she had quite a story herself, and it didn't get told very often, and the whole story was never told until I was able to start doing more research and finding out more about her story. And I was laying there in bed one night, and I was like, I have to get her story out there. It's it's the only thing I can think of to do to honor her memory. And a few days later, you and I were talking about this story on Facebook because I'd reached out to you about something. I think it was about Choctaw classes or you know some words or something. Mm-hmm. And you told that story, and you said, I'll never be able to tell that story because no one will ever listen because I was told it never happened. And yet my grandparents said that it did happen. So I said, I want to find a way to help you get that story out there. And this story was what launched me into going, yes, I need to go ahead and start this podcast because I feel like for those who want to tell their ancestral stories and history, just cool things that happened here or scary or awful things, whatever it is, we need to get the word out about that and preserve it so it doesn't go away forever. So I want to thank you for inspiring me to actually do something. So I'm glad you're telling us now and that you're not keeping that a secret because it's a very important story. Just it's a part of history. Mm-hmm. We Choctaws don't have to let these stories go unheard and dying off over time. Wasn't there also a story of your granny that isn't in the history books? Uh, so you got some pushback too about the Alichi courthouse and the Choctaw police and the dancing. You know, uh, there wasn't very many white people here whenever it was, it was all Choctaw. And so my, my great-grandpa, he said, anytime he would see a white man coming up the trail or something, he on a horseback, he would hide because he said, I, I wasn't, we wasn't used to seeing white people. Yeah. And in those days, my granny, like I said, she's 96 years old, and she passed in 82. She used to tell a story about her aunt. I don't know if it was her mama's sister or her brother's sister or a great aunt. Because, okay. you know, you, you keep that. My aunt, it wasn't names. Yeah. And, but she said, my aunt used to love to dance. But it was a Choctaw law that women could not dance after midnight. If you get caught dancing, you had to be whipped. And she she had an aunt. She said, she didn't care. She loved <laughs> to dance. And I don't know if there was any alcohol involved, homebrew. Of course, that's that side of the family that loved to drink homebrew. Yeah. And, and my grandpa, the only picture my dad had, he was sitting there, and he had his big cow, black cowboy hat on, and he was sitting there with a jug of whiskey. And that's the only you know, picture I, we had. I don't know who my dad gave it to. Yeah. I don't know if alcohol was involved, but she would get caught, and they would whoop her. And I don't know how many how many whips she got, but that's another one. I asked one of the guys that talks about history and talked mm-hmm. all, and I, I told him about that. He said, you know, I've never heard that. And he said, I've never even read it. But I don't think they punished women. And so that was the end of that. So all I know is what I was told as a child. What I used not, when I say I'm told, they didn't sit me down and say, like I do my grandkids or my, Mm -hmm. I tell them. What I learned is by listening. In those days, you listen while they're talking. Mm -hmm. We didn't have TV. We didn't have, you know, and I lived in a, we lived, I was growing up in a three-room shotgun house there, no indoor plumbing, no water, nothing. And we had a well right here, I showed you after a while, and I drawed water, and we lived there. So at nighttime, it's so hot in the summertime, 
Like if we canned our own vegetables and stuff, it's just so hot. So yeah. we sit on the porch and the house kind of cool off where you just get so tired. And by dark, if you ever went camping, you know, oh, you yeah. cook outside, you do everything else. And by dark, you just wore out sitting by the fire or whatever. And you get so tired and you finally go to bed. So that's how I learned listening mm-hmm. to the old ones talk. And especially if they talk about Staholo or Tanokusa, the little people, you listen, you scared, go to bed. You know, <laughs> I remember my dad telling a story. He was sitting there on, on the porch listening and, and he kept falling asleep. And he was sitting by my, between grandma and, uh, and my grandpa. And he said he was sitting there and the older kids were sitting over there on the porch and the, the older ones was talking. He'd fall asleep and he'd run into, when he fell into one of them, they pushed him back, go to bed. I want to just no second mind, go to sleep. And he kept doing that, and finally, his daddy told him, Not us, Benny, like you, huh? Aren't you on this, John? my. He said, Ain't nothing going to be sitting in there. Get your blanket and go to, or get your quilt and go to sleep. So he went in there, and he said, Well, there's a, a cedar chest, and the blankets were there for the kids, you know, because you know, they didn't have beds for everybody, you know. Right. So he went and got his. Blanket and something pulled it and it made a noise. And so he pulled it again. He got scared. And you know, his dad, his dad, <laughs> our grandpa already told him, Go get your blanket. I'm going to get your quilt and lay down. Ain't nothing going to be sitting in there. He said, Dad, he said, You said ain't nothing going to be sitting in here. Here's some sitting in here pulling my quilt. It's crawling at and me. So he, yeah, he ran in there. His uh, grandpa ran in there and it was a, it was a raccoon. Mama raccoon was oh. back there. And whenever he pulled his wheel, she pulled the back. I love that story. Yeah, so, but anyway, uh, that's how we learned. Yeah. It's when the, the elders talk, you listen. It was in our language, and that's what I hear, I mean, and then learned here. It wasn't like now, we don't speak the language where they can understand or listen. Everybody or the kids are in TV or yeah. Whatever, all of this that it's here when I'm gone, it's gone. Yeah. So I appreciate it. You know what? Yeah. What you're trying to bring out. I, I, I tell them, my family, immediate family, that's it. Mm-hmm. A lot of that they forget. Right. But I remember these stories that that you know that was told. I'm so glad you remember them, and that you're willing to share because, as you know, a lot of folks in our Native American community, they can be very guarded and that's okay too. I do, I do respect that. But if we don't talk about it, it may just go away. So, mm-hmm. But I've never heard that story about women getting whipped. And I don't even know. They might have been so scared that it didn't happen. Yeah. You know, but <laughs> she's the, the one that kept. Yeah. She kept getting whipped is what my granny used to say. She wanted she to dance care. after midnight. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't and help she herself. She always got caught and she didn't care. <laughs> so that might have been... You know, something just out of, not say meanness, but just, I don't know what I'm looking for. It's kind of like that deal with the, the ant that wouldn't eat, you know, mm-hmm. the flower out of just. Yeah, for you know, pure stubbornness. Yeah, stubbornness is what I'm looking for. My great-grandmother was the same. She used to get on this white horse and ride off into the pasture really fast and hard. And, and her white guardians would say, get off that horse. You're going to hurt yourself. And she was like, no. And she would just keep on doing it. And she always said, I just didn't listen to him. Love that Choctaw stubbornness. <laughs> yeah. So your family passed down stories about Bigfoot and wolves too, mm-hmm. right? Tell us more about that. 
and shape-shifting, I think you said. Well, yeah, they, they was good at shape-shifting. Uh, I'm talking about the Staholo. The Staholo was practicing witchcraft. If you don't know much about it, I can't really explain it, but it's, it's all spiritual. Mm-hmm. And so when a Staholo was shape-shift, I don't know about anybody else, but I'm talking about the Choctaws. They had to leave their, their intros or their, their guts somewhere. Mm-hmm. And in the woods, if you ever been much around here, if they cut a tree down or if a tree fell on one, uh, you know, there's a stump. A lot of times, there's water in it. Mm-hmm. And that's what they used to use. And it's all spiritual to put the guts in it, but it makes a noise while it's moving. It's got to move because this person's alive. It's just shaped into something other being. Wow. Create, you know, we'll create or create it. Uh, an animal. Mm-hmm. A lot of time then dog, wolf, owl, whatever uh, they shape shifted into. You know, back in them days it wasn't just roads of people going through the woods walking, riding a horse. They yeah. they hear it, they see it, they get off the horse or walk over there and they they see that and they take most people carried knives, you know, they had knives, they sharpen a what we call fully, you know, something you get hooked with or mm-hmm. something, you know, <laughs> the switch. Sharpen the end up. And you take it and you stab these guts, throw it behind you and you go on. The first house you come to, you're supposed to tell it. You tell them, and you go on. Said, I found some guts in the woods and I stabbed it, stabbed mm-hmm. it all up. Somebody's going to die. But you had to tell someone. So is it someone in their household? So it didn't have to be in that household. Yeah. But but somebody somebody. from that area. Yeah. It's usually somewhere where close you knew where this tree is Mm -hmm. that you can do that. Yeah. And so they go and do whatever out there. But when they come back and they shape shift back into a human, the stomach won't hold no water, no food because it's been stabbed. It's been stabbed. And so it kills them in just a few days. But that's how the stories of of, of Staholo that, you know, sometimes my granny used to talk about, I never did see it. My granny and even mom talked about sitting on the porch and a fireball. It's almost like a comet. You know, you see one way across the sky. But these were fireballs about tree high. And they would come by your house, a fireball. And it's almost like flames sticking behind it. Really? But, ah, Staholo, don't you? Then there goes a witch, you know. But that's how good they were in yeah. those days. Yeah. And as far as talking about Bigfoot or Hatakulba, Hatakulba, we pronounce it in Choctaw is uh, human-like or mm-hmm. man-like. But my granny said they used to sit on the porch at nighttime, and even my dad talking about it. they'd hear Tintasaha, they holler at each other, and another one would holler, "Ma, Hatakulba Tint." They lost one another and they're hollering for each other. They eventually meet up. Wow. And I don't know if it was a maiden call or one of them got right. lost or what, but that's what they used to say. And they used to, uh, my the older ones talk about things like that. Mm-hmm. And I never seen that. I just wondered, what's that talk about? You know, yeah. They would tell you, you know, it's, it's a human life, it's a creature. It's so tall, you know. And when I met my wife, we moved out of there. And my dad lived here. And he had no car. And right out here, 
about where my grandson got that basketball goal was a, a bad spot and all the whole water was a ditch, uh-huh. you know, just a puddle. And it dried up and all it had was mud. And my dad used to like to go here to the pine tree and he'd take these little metal chair like this and sit under the pine tree or he'd lay there on the ground, you know, under the shade, mm-hmm. in the shade. Well, he started going over there one day, one morning, and, and there was a footprint. He said it had to be over uh, uh, over 20 inches. He said it was a big footprint, the toes and everything. Ooh. And he always <laughs> he always talked about Hattapulba or Bigfoot. And even when we lived in that three-room shotgun house, that, me as a kid, we went to church. we come in, and it had been raining and raining for a number of days, so everything was muddy. This was in early 70s and well, my mom got a new Maytag washer mm-hmm. the one that had the ring grip we had on the back porch yeah we come in from church and we didn't have no running water so there was always a bucket of water on the back porch and a dipper hanging up and you dip it and drink your water well yeah. my dad he liked fresh water so he would always walk over here and draw water at night and bring it back well he went out and he's a Hey, how can I order washing machine? Don't go by the guy. And mom said, "What? Somebody stole my washing machine!" You know. Oh, no. And so she comes out, and and uh, she he goes in and gets his flashlight, and shines it. You know this telephone pole right here, or this well, electric pole, right, right there, just right before you get to it, there was that washing machine. No way. But something had through the washing machine, and it had embedded. In that wet, soft <laughs> ground, and it was full of dirt, but it was just like, no. it was just like if it was clay, you just mashed it in. Oh my God. But somebody <laughs> threw that heavy washer, and my dad said, Hattakulbat had came by and did that. I remember that. So Thanks it was heavy, and we had to, had to take it out, clean it all up, and we finally put it back on the porch. And so when he sees this Bigfoot print, he ain't got no, you know, that's days, didn't even have a camera. My dad didn't have no camera. Then. And he came, he just walked this little ways. Then he had to sit down. So he take his middle chair and it's early in the morning, you know, so he's walking to the neighbor. My neighbor at the steel is over here. Yeah. He said, I know he got camera. He'd take pictures. He got all the older and he said it took him a couple hours to get to because he walk a wall, sit a wall, walk a wall, sit a wall. Mm-hmm. And then Edgar told him, said, awesome. I'm not going to come over there and take a picture of that. And he said, people think you crazy. If me and you say something like that, they think we're crazy. They won't put us in crazy home. No, I'm not going to come take a picture <laughs> of it. He said, somebody just printed it there and make you think that. So he turned around and come back. Said, walk a while, sit a while, walk a while. He got <laughs> almost to this barn, this red barn. He's on the other side. Here come a car. He said, oh, somebody's coming. So he gets his chair, and they, they come up here, and they uh, honking the horn, honking the horn. And then directly they start back out, and he said, he hollered and waved his hand, because he's still on the other side of the barn in the woods. He'll holler, ah, and his car leaves. <laughs> he said, oh, no, surely not. He said, he got, finally made it up here. The car had went right through there and run over there. So he said, I ain't no proof. No proof. Exactly. So things like that we keep to ourselves. Oh yeah. Even like the washing machine, uh, the footprint, <laughs> yeah. we just keep it within our family. Yeah. But I've heard many stories of my 
people's chopped off around Eagle Town, around the bottoms, mm-hmm. and thing you know they see. But the old ones always said, "If Prince had a bundle much beside if they don't want you to see them, you won't see them." You won't see them. Yes, I'll tell you another one. Yeah. My dad said when he was young, you know, this before in 1968 when they built this dam, this Pine Creek. This is this this river that you crossed coming. Did you come this way? Yeah. Yeah, from Valiant. Yeah. When you crossed this last bridge before you got to my road, the County Road. Mm-hmm. Choctaws call that Boklosa. Mm. Boklosa is Black River, but the white people call it Little River. I don't even remember any more Choctaws talking about it, but my bunch always called it Boklosa. Okay. And. I'll tell you two stories on that. Yeah. My dad said when he was little, they had kinfolk lived up there right on the edge of the river before they built this dam. And they went over there, and every time they go over there, he always tell the kids, don't you go play over by the river, because there was some bluffs mm-hmm. that drop off, and you could run over there and look down towards the river. Yeah. In a certain spot right there where they lived. He said, uh, I, he, I never forget, he tell this story. He ran over there as a kid, you know, and looked over, and he seen a woman. She was swimming. He said he couldn't remember if it was an Indian woman or a white, whitish. He just knew it was a woman from here up. Mm-hmm. She was out of the water, and he could see she was a woman. She had long hair. He was a woman down there. And <laughs> the kids are playing, and look. And she, comes, she looks up at him, and she comes up, and she dies. The other half is a fish. Whoa. It's a mermaid. He used to tell stories like that. It's a mermaid too. in Oklahoma. <laughs> and, you know, he tells stories of, you know, at my age, you know, in the 50s and 60s, he'd be talking stuff like that. Yeah. Him and mom, I was think crazy, you know. But now it makes you wonder. Yeah. He had but to he see said something. He went in the, in the wintertime hunting, deer hunting. He seen, you know, quite a few deer tracks. Yeah. He was trying to kill him a buck. And he seen some little ones. He just went on, you know. He said, you know, he liked to hunt. My, and the highway threes over here. My dad used to love to just walk and hunt all the way to three, and sometimes cross the other side. You know, I'm talking about when I was a kid. I remember him hunting like that, coming back. Yeah. And he had 25 or 30 squirrels. He take his belt off and you know loop it, make a cut and a slit in a foot, and that's how he carried it. And oh, I used to. Have, Get so sick and tired of holding squirrels and helping him clean it. Yeah, we just cleaned a lot of squirrels whenever I was a kid. But when he was hunt, he he liked to walk. Mm-hmm. And at one time, he said he was walk up towards Kinfolk Place, and there was a spot out there beside the river you could look down on, and it was kind of flat. He said, "Boy, I don't know. I just had a feeling might be a buck over there." So he went over there, and he you know he kind of got tired, so he cleaned the snow off the ground and kind of dug down in the leaves where it's kind of dry. He sat down there and he kept looking around over there and there, didn't see no deer. He kept seeing, what is that on the ground? So he finally gets up. He goes down and, you know, to that little flat spot by the river. And there's footprints. He said there was little be footprints just, he said it looked like maybe a teenager's footprints what it looked like. Mm-hmm. They were just everywhere. All along that river, he wow. said he looked around. He said first thing he thought of was some kid was down here barefooted, you know. And then he seen some big ones. Wow. Then he knew <laughs> that the Bigfoots would be down there with the little ones. 
Wow. And he said, well, I started looking. He said, I got out. And get out of there as fast as yeah. you can. So he he used to tell stories of that. Wow. Here. And so uh, as a kid, you know, like I said, as a kid, you don't think of much things like that. Hearing stories until I got older. And then when I seen it for myself, I seen what it did to our washer, what it, <laughs> she seen. I went down there and got the hair. I kept it. I kept the hair. Oh, you did? And then that guy, my friend at Eagle Town said, if you ever show anybody and they still want to try to make proof of it, he said, I bet you will never get rid of people looking around your place. True. And I said, well, I don't want people running around looking. But if they're there, they're there. They probably was there before we were. Mm-hmm. So we just leave them be. Well, I, I will not tell I anyone where you live. Yeah, I threw it away. Oh, you did? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Probably good. So people don't come knocking on yeah. your door. Where's mm-hmm. that? Where's that Bigfoot See, I see there? a lot of that on TV. Yeah. And like, all oh, Bigfoot research, Bigfoot hunt, this and that. My dad and granny and them used to tell me where they live. Mm-hmm. And so I, I know where to look. But I don't tell nobody else. And I've only seen it one time where they was in that area or where they looking for them. And it was an ending. Mm. Told them where to go look. I said, well, that'd be the last thing I do. Yeah. Even though I was taught where they lived. Yeah. I won't tell that because if they don't want you to see them, you won't see them. True. And so if they show themselves to you, it's almost like an honor. Mm-hmm. True. Why would you? Oh, that's yeah. good logic. Mm-hmm. I hadn't thought about that. So speaking of your grandparents who told you all these great stories or at least sat around and talked and and you took note, um, did any of your grandparents attend boarding schools? Well, yeah, my grandpa did. I mean, not my grandpa, but my, 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 my dad. Okay. He attended uh, Goodland. Okay. Boarding school over there around the Hugo Grand area. Okay. Yeah, but he said he didn't stay there long because uh, Grandpa Millwood went and got him. Said it's time to work the fields and mm. I need my help. So he come got him out. Okay. But, but that's, my, my dad had an eighth grade education. Mm-hmm. That, that was it. But I don't know how long he had stayed there. Yeah, but he went, they went and got him. Yeah. Yeah. Did he say anything about Goodland? That's one of the boarding schools I know very little yeah, about. No, he never said much about, uh, we talked about playing football and stuff there, yeah. you know. But, yeah, not much. He never said much about it. Mm-hmm. Now, my, my my granny on my mom's side, well, this one here, the one that raised me, mom, Mary, mm-hmm. uh, she went to boarding school here at Wheelock. You know, I even had a picture, but I don't know where it's at. They wanted me to bring it over at Wheelock. When she was, you know, when she was, had a picture. Yeah. And I got it put up somewhere. I don't know where it's at. If my wife puts it up. We ain't going to find it unless we're looking for something else. So. I know, right? But it's, it's put up somewhere, yeah. Well, but what was her name? Her name was Mary. N. Not M. But Mary Baker was her, her name. Mary Baker. Is it N-E-R-Y? N-A-R-Y. Uh-huh. Let's see if I can look her up, yeah. too. Uh, there's a photo of her on the wall here, and she looks so sweet. Typical Choctaw grandmother. Did you know anything about her time at Wheelock? No, she didn't talk much about it, but she tell she tell a story of, of a ghost she seen one time. Ooh. She said it was real cold winter time, and she said she had got up, went 
uh, to the bathroom or something, and when she came back in, and she heard the wind blowing a little bit, and she heard their swing outside. Like somebody swinging, and she thought, why, why is that swing making that noise? Because, you know, when they play out, when they play outside, they hear that swing. Yeah. So she goes to the window and looks outside, and there was this little girl, barefooted, swinging in the swing. Oh, my gosh, creepy. But it was... Uh, but not really it there. It was freezing weather, you know, so Whoa. it wasn't, it wasn't really so weird, girl, huh? But he said, yeah, she, she said she seen a little girl there, but she didn't talk much about it, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. as many of them did not. So how far back does your knowledge of your ancestors go? I do you know what part of Mississippi they came from or I don't, one of the other I states? don't really know. Just what Granny talked about. You know, mm-hmm. she was ninety something years old and so she didn't tell what area we come from or Yeah. You know, some some things a lot of it just didn't talk about. True. You know. As you know, Native Choctaw exists so that we can preserve our Native stories, culture, and traditions. But the deeper meaning behind that preservation is honoring our families by keeping their memories alive. For many years, they were told not to speak their language and to put away their culture, never to speak of any of it again. Well, I say let's defy the past when we can and defy those who committed cultural genocide by talking about it and keeping it all alive. Some don't feel comfortable doing so. I respect that 100%. And those stories do die out like dust in the wind eventually. But for those who are comfortable sharing, that's why I'm here. So I'll switch gears here a bit. Let's talk food, banaha and Indian fry bread. Fry bread is a native staple across many tribes, but banaha is a Choctaw type of bread, so it's more traditional to our tribe. You helped me with some good tips the other day when I was making banaha, and it was so yummy. My family has always been what I think are experts on fry bread, but maybe I'm biased, but we're not so skilled on banaha. (laughs) But anyway, listeners, feel free to prove me wrong on the fry bread thing. I really think that we are pretty good at it. But all right, so banaha, tell us more about how you tend to make banaha and some of those best practices that you shared with me the other day. I know it's kind of hard to over. Banaha, they just take the the cornmeal. Of course, they add a little flour to it now. You can take like four cups of cornmeal, a cup of all-purpose flour, Mm -hmm. and add a little, maybe a a teaspoon of baking powder uh, and a teaspoon of baking soda. You can cook beans for about an hour and drain the juice and put a cup of beans in there mm. and then you put boiling water mix it stir it you can stir it with your hands or with a spoon mm-hmm. you can have ice water on the side to cool your hands and warm water for the corn shucks so it'll be workable mm-hmm. some of them you'll tear into strands like strings so whenever you put the balls of corn uh, banana in there mm-hmm. And wrap it, you tie, tie it, it, and then you got to boil it. Uh, my granny used to use sweet potatoes. She loved to do sweet potatoes in hers. So fancy. Uh, some of them use black-eyed peas, but we've always used pinto. Okay. Pinto beans. And you can just, whatever's your, your, you know, the one you like, you can use. But that's that's the way we used to do with the banaha. Some of them like to use a uh, little... Little bacon grease or dry salt meat go with it. Mm-hmm. And everybody's different. Me myself, my favorite is eating it in for breakfast. Huh. I love uh, runny eggs. Yeah. So I'll, I'll whatever leftover banana I'll split it in half, 
put it in there while I'm frying my eggs, flip it, and I like it like that, all in my beans. We were mostly banaha, and then my bunch, when I was a kid, was like biscuits. They made biscuits. We weren't too much on fry bread. Fry bread didn't really break out until the 70s, but I was told that whenever they captured a lot of the Indians and they had to move them to the fort or getting ready to put them on a reservation, they had to feed them. Mm-hmm. And the story is told that they brought beef in, and the army, the soldiers got the best meat, and then maybe the rotten meat they give to the Indians. Well, they're starving. They had nothing to do, but they got all this flour. So they cooked this meat for the grease because it was inedible. Mm-hmm. And they had the grease. Well, they made bread out of it and fried it, and it had the meat taste to it. And so the fry bread was born. And I don't know what tribe it was awarded to who did it, but two Greek immigrants was in Navajo country and said, hey, how come you couldn't put, you know, this beef in here with your, your vegetables and stuff? And voila, mm-hmm. the fry bread Indian taco was born. Ta-da. So in the 70s, I used to hear them talk about Navajo tacos. Now all... Indians are just laid claim to it, you know. (laughs) Everybody's laid claim to it. And you can find both fry bread and banaha recipes online, but banaha requires a little more of an art to it. So if you'll, if our listeners, if you're making it, pair it with some of those best practices that Solomon talked about. But I'll post both recipes on my Native Chalk Talk Facebook page, and then you can just add in your Solomon tips for the beginner. (laughs) Solomon Chef's tips for the beginner in there. For those who are making the Indian fry bread, one of the tips is definitely to heat the oil super hot. So I think to 475 probably. And my family, we always put pinto beans, sometimes lettuce, beef, tomatoes. I've never. Grated cheese. What? Check the temp. You've never checked the temperature? No, you check it by bread. Well, okay. So we always did that too. Until recently, my husband started using this. It's a... It's a crock pot that has temperatures oh, on it. Oh, the temperature setting. Oh, yeah. really? And it's interesting because it keeps the oil from spitting out as much as well. Oh. So if you're happening to use something like that, which most people do not, <laughs> just know that you got to get okay. the temperature really hot. But you're right, Modern Simon. technology. <laughs> <laughs> My mom always used one of those, she uses one of those black pots. Cast iron. What cast iron skillet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or yeah. cast iron pot. And you're right. You can usually tell when it's that hot yeah. that it's ready for the bread um, when you do it the, the real way, probably, is what I should say. But, yeah, we used to put, or we still do, pinto beans, sometimes beef, lettuce, tomato, grated cheese, sour cream, and so on. And you can add whatever you like. You can make it an art. And then we also eat it with honey on it for dessert later. Do you guys do honey on your fry bread? They have every now and then, yeah. Yeah, I love it. The funny thing about it all is... There's like this fry bread cult following. People are making fry bread these days the size of a tray sometimes. <laughs> and there have always been fry bread dinners that people can come together as a community and make. And, you know, sometimes folks will pay for the tasty goodness. But now you can get fry bread all over Oklahoma, sometimes even in restaurants. I think even Taco Mayo has a fry bread day now. <laughs> but I was actually surprised that in New Haven, Connecticut, where my daughter went to college, there's a restaurant called Geronimo's, and they serve very fancy fry bread with goat cheese and arugula and balsamic vinaigrette. So it's actually really good and definitely a twist on the non-fancy style we're used to, but well, now I'm hungry. 
Um, are there any native causes or businesses you'd like to promote, Solomon? And be quick so I can go make some fry bread. Mm, Just kidding. You know, go take your time. <laughs> not, not right offhand. I can't think of any. I just appreciate you coming during this, and I get to share with, with well, guess with the world, you know, yeah. what I know and when I'm dead and gone, a lot of it be go to the grave with me. I know a lot of things about uh, it's the whole little, what they did and what they talked about, but mm -hmm. I said that will go to the grave with me, yeah, because some idiot out there will try it, yeah, and I have a lot of stories there too, but I'm just sharing with you what what little you know. What you feel comfortable what I, sharing. You know, comfortable with and yeah. that, that I, you know, can be told or be heard mm -hmm. because I'm 53 years old, but I was raised by the older ones, mm -hmm. by, my, by the older ones here. And I hate to say this, but my age and younger, I don't know of any first language speakers wow. in this area. Yeah. Even 10... 18, 20 years older than me, they can't speak conversation, me and you, mm -hmm. if we spoke Choctaw. They got to throw English in. Mm -hmm. A lot of them can't read it. They can't speak it like that fluently. They can't write it. I can do, I can write it. I can read it. I can talk it, but I can't teach it. Mm -hmm. I can teach it one-on-one, -on -one, but you got to know English to teach it because their first language is English. So you got to say, this is a noun. Subject, object, right. whatever. I don't know none of that. But you could probably more so teach me, for instance, the spoken, just the, yes, the I dialogue. Yes, I can teach you. Yeah. And like her, I, we was, my wife was started Choctaw class right before COVID hit. Mm -hmm. And she was trying to learn. And I'm trying to, at the same time, teach my grandson. And yeah. he he say things and just say it just like me. And then he tell her, okay, Pokemon, you say it. And he laughs at her because she says it, it don't sound right. <laughs> You know, that's but, encouraging. But it's hard <laughs> if somebody don't teach you and have the patience yeah, or lassage. True. And I, I might be one of the few of the last first language speakers at my age that's left. And I'm gonna be honest with you. What they teach now is not what I was taught. Wow. A lot of it is different. Really. The way they speak. And my, my elders told me there's not a word for everything, mm -hmm. but they try to make a word for everything, explain it. But then I have to look at it. They had to adapt before, you know, True. because they had to try to explain it. So really, we might have lost some of the language somewhere, and it might not have been so true what I speak, but we're losing it more and more is what I'm saying. Yes, sir. But I'm glad they're teaching. I'm glad they're learning. I'm glad they're taking the classes, whatever, like you're talking about, mm -hmm. so our language doesn't die. Yeah. But a lot of it is not taught. What we, what I speak, they brought here. Right. And so the elders, that's where I learned it from. And it came from the old country, Mississippi. Mm -hmm. That's what I speak. Yeah. There's a lot. And I was over there. We was over there just two, three, four years ago. And I spoke to an elderly lady, and she told me, she told us, they slanging it here. The young people don't want to speak it, so we're losing the language that us older ones speak it. Mm -hmm. And she said, there's, there's a lot of language still here, 
She said, but a lot of them are young, lazy and they don't speak. Yeah. They're, they're, it's English, mostly. I don't know exactly how everyone can get a hold of someone like yourself, but you know, go to those first language speakers that are still around today or you know, make sure that you're comparing it with notes from someone who can be a language mentor to you, um, the things that you are learning. But this is very important information and, and really interesting that I get to talk to someone like yourself who is a first language speaker. And I learn a lot from you. I mean, here and there, you'll share something with me and it, it really helps me. Thank you for mentoring people here and there. Well, thank you for putting us out there. Oh, absolutely. Just talk, talk. It's an honor. You know. It's definitely an honor. Well, and there's an open invitation anytime. If you want to do any more of these recordings in the future, you just let me know. I'm very fascinated by all the stuff you shared with us today. Thank you for that. Yakuki. Amen. The Choctaw Nation has always provided a foundation upon which a future can be built. From our home in Southeast Oklahoma to a bingo hall that grew to be one of the largest casinos in the world. Today's summer school programs lay the groundwork for a love of learning. Small business programs support local economies. And with over 10,000 jobs created, Choctaw offers financial stability to tribal members and our neighbors. Together we build success, because together we're more. Thanks for listening to Native Chalk Talk. Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native, C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at nativechalktalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki. Thank you, my friends.